I'm excited about looking at 1 John with you guys this summer. And as I thought about it, it's because I want you all, I want us to be encouraged as we embark into this next season of Christ the King Church Newton. When is the last time that someone encouraged you? What I mean is that when is the last time someone spoke to you about reality in such a way that gave you courage to enter into or to continue in or to accomplish something that was very difficult? To be able to genuinely encourage each other is a great gift. It's the mark of an excellent coach maybe you've had. A thoughtful mentor, a wise counselor, a good leader. Not all encouragement is the same. And you and I intuitively know this, though we often don't admit it. Honestly, it isn't very encouraging when you hear phrases like, it'll all work out, don't worry about it. You're such a good person anyway. Everything is going to be fine. But the question for us is how often do we catch ourselves using these same empty phrases? A slightly better way of encouragement usually involves an assessment by somebody whom we respect, an assessment of our own abilities. And we consider that the person who is least biased is the one who could provide the best assessment, meaning that parents, your opinions don't count, right? Because we know how biased you are. Better yet, for us and for our culture, is the encouragement of what we might call empirical evidence, the observable data, right? That which is analyzable, that's provable. Children, these are test scores, right? GPAs track records, past accomplishments. But I want you to hear something today, hands down, the best type of encouragement that we could give one another that we could receive. Hands down, the best form of encouragement is the type that is based on fundamental truths, fundamental realities of life. That's the best kind of encouragement. For example, you ought to find it easy to encourage somebody that runs a funeral home, right? Your future looks bright because the fundamental basis of your life is secure. We're all gonna keep dying. It's in this vein of encouragement, not encouragement of empty phrases, not encouragement of your own abilities assessed by one who thinks very highly of you, not the encouragement of empirical data of what's happened in the past, but the encouragement of the foundational truths of reality, of life, that John writes to us in our text today. The main idea of this text is this, that the command to love one another is possible because of the Father's love, which generates in us love. As I wrote it in the order of worship, if you wanna follow along, the command to love one another is possible because the Father's love generates lovers. That's what we ought to see. And I hope that you find this deeply encouraging because I'm convinced that that, that is exactly what John is intending to do. How does he encourage us 
with the foundational realities of life in this text. It's going to be in three ways. The first is found in verses 7 through 11. And I've titled this, that Jesus' coming initiated the passing away of darkness. That's verses 7 through 11. And then we're going to jump to the end, verses 15 through 17, and see that Jesus' coming initiated the passing away of even the world. And then finally, I want to go to the middle section, the section that is the highlight of what we've just read. And I want you to see that Jesus' coming reveals the love of the Father toward us. That's what this is about. Deep and real encouragement because it's foundational to the realities of life. And we need to be reminded of them even as we enter into this phase of what it means for us to be the church in Newton and in Wellesley and beyond. Look at these verses with me. 1,021 of those Blue Pew Bibles. And we're going to start in verse 7 again. Behold, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. You know that John is about to say that we ought to love one another. He doesn't come right out and say it. He actually compares it first to hatred, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But he says, look, I'm not giving you a new commandment, but an old commandment. And he can say that because this commandment for us to love one another is straight out of Leviticus. He says, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. He's saying, you who have grown up in the faith that springs from the Bible, you know this command already. But then he changes thought for just a minute. And he says in verse 8, at the same time, it is a new command that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John says this, I'm, I'm not writing you a new command when I tell you to love one another. It's, it's an old command, but in a sense, it is new. And it's new because it's true in him. It's true in Jesus. John doesn't bring up this language of a new command and an old command. He uses the language that Jesus gave him. And you can turn to John 13 and see exactly where John gets this language. Because Jesus says to his disciples, I'm giving you a new commandment that you ought to love one another. And you go, Jesus, it's not new. It's in the Old Testament. But then he adds this caveat. Just as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. And John is able to say this is a new commandment. It's an old commandment that is clarified by the life of Jesus and that in Jesus' coming, this new commandment is ours because in Christ's coming, he has initiated the passing away of darkness. John says that for us to love one another is to lay down our lives for each other. John says that in Christ's coming, the darkness of this world is passing away and there in verse 8, he says, the true light is already shining. John picks up the language of light and dark from Jesus. But Jesus doesn't pick it up out of nowhere. Jesus pulls it from the Old Testament in various and sundry places. But one of the places that's most pertinent to what we're talking about today is Isaiah 59. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah writes with light and darkness. Therefore, justice is far from us, speaking of the condition of the world, and righteousness does not overtake us. And then here he goes, we hope for light, but behold darkness 
and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. I could keep going if you want to, but the very next chapter starts off like this, the song we first sang when we sat down together. Arise, shine, it says in Isaiah 60, for the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, a thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. In Jesus' coming, the darkness is passing away because the true light, Christ, the one who says in John 8, behold, I am the light of the world, is shining. And in his light, this commandment to love one another is defined and clarified. John tells us in verse 9 that there's an easy test that we can use. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. What is the test if you live according to the reality that ought to encourage us today? that the darkness is passing away and the light has begun to shine. It's simply this. Do you love your brothers and sisters or do you hate them? Now, our nuclear family is certainly included in this, but John writes to the church. And so what is obvious before us is how do we love the church? How do we love each other in the church? And you say, well, that's easy. There's nobody in this entire church that I hate. There, There are a few people that I don't know yet, but I wouldn't say that I hate them. But if you understand what John defines as hate, you might have to stop and ask yourself. John says, for those of us who have the goods of the world and we see our brothers in need, but we close our heart against him. That's the language that John uses in 1 John 3. He doesn't pick that up out of nowhere. He he pulls it out of Deuteronomy 15. Again, an old commandment. He says, that's what it means to hate, is to close your heart against someone else. To close your heart against them. And he says that the danger of that is denying the light. The light that we saw two weeks ago that exposes us for who we are that exposes our need, that exposes who we really are. That we avoid that type of exposure. But John says, whoever loves his brothers and sisters walks in the light. He says the danger of walking in darkness is that you're not just in darkness, he says in verse 11, but he also says that when you walk around in darkness, it's dangerous. And all you have to do is try to get to the bathroom in the middle of the night through your bedroom and you know how dangerous that is to your knees and your shins and your feet. But John goes on to explain, it's not just that, that walking is dangerous, but you get lost and you're blinded. 
My question is, how many of you feel lost? Why am I here? Why is this life the way that it is? Why am I living the life that I'm living? John says, the answer to that is that we are called to love one another. And he promises that the darkness is passing and that the light has already begun to shine. The second fundamental reality that John encourages us with is that at Jesus' coming, he initiated the passing away of the world. Now again, I'm asking you to skip verses 12 through 14. I want to highlight those. We're going to end with those. So skip over that for just a minute and look at these verses with me in verses 15, 16, and 17. Again, John uses a fundamental reality of life to bring you great encouragement and to bring me, to bring us this great encouragement. Jesus' coming initiated the passing away of the world. Children, those of you who are younger won't know this band, but when our parents, when your parents and I were in high school, we used to sing with this band, R.E.M. It's the end of the world as we know it, right? And I remember when I traveled through Athens, Georgia, and we actually went by Michael's house. And I remember rolling down the world and singing, it's the end of the world as we know it. And you got to wonder how many people did that in Athens. That's ridiculous, right? But here, John is saying, look, at the coming of Christ, the world as you know it is ending. And what does he mean? In another place, Jesus actually introduces God's love to the world to Nicodemus by saying, hey, look, God so loved the world. And when we talk about God loving the world, we're talking about God loving the humanity of the world. When we talk here, this idea of the world is passing away, we're not talking about the human beings of the world necessarily. We're talking more about the organized rebellion of the world. Because again, light has shined into the darkness and light has convinced people that Jesus is the Christ, he's sent from God, and that in him is forgiveness of sins. We're going to get to that in just a minute. And beginning with that belief, your life begins to radically change. Orientation is not about organized rebellion anymore, but begins to be focused on love for the Father. But John starts this and he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John is talking about our love, our love for the world versus our love for the Father. And he says, you cannot have it both ways. It's either that you love the world or you love the Father. John gives us another test. And in fact, it's a test that has everything to do with hating our brothers and sisters, right? Of looking indifferently at each other because we're overwhelmed with our own need. We're overwhelmed with our own selfishness, with our own lives. We don't have time for anybody else's life. John says this, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and then he defines this as the world, what the world has to offer, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it is actually from the world. And here is John's fundamental reality. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What does the world offer you? 
What does the world offer you? Whether you're a Christian or whether you're here today seeking the truth and wondering, what does Christianity offer me? I want you to first see that the world offers you this, the desires of your flesh. The world, that organized system of rebellion says, act and behave any way that you want to. Identify yourself by any desire that you have and pursue that desire headlong. The world says, look and see what you want and go after it. Whatever that thing is, go after it with an abandonment. That's what freedom and liberty mean. And finally, the world says, take pride in your life in living your life to the fullest as you define it. You see, the world says that God doesn't have a right to give human beings an owner's manual. That God doesn't have the right or the ability to write the manual that tells us how we as human beings created in His image run. But Isaiah, the prophet again says, in chapter 55, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? He points out that the world offers you desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, desires and pride of possessions that we derive life from. But he says, look, you spend your money on that and it never satisfies. You labor for that, but it doesn't feed you. So what does God offer? Do you see that that's what's left out in this section? It's left out because it's highlighted as what has already been given before. The fundamental reality that John encourages us with in this life so that we might obey God so that we might love God. John even says in chapter five that to love God is to keep his commandments. So what does God offer? I want you to look now as we close at these verses 12 through 14. No one knows what to do with these verses because they're complicated. They're complicated in the fact that they're two sets of the same things repeated. They're complicated in the fact that it says children and then it says fathers and then it says young men and it doesn't seem to flow very clearly. There's even more complicated aspects to it when you look at how it's actually written. But without fail, what I want you to see is that these verses are written for your encouragement because they speak of something that has definitively come to pass. A fundamental reality of life because of who Jesus is. And I'm going to say this. That when John speaks to the children, he speaks to all of us. John's already called us little children. He's called us the beloved. He's called us his little children. And so he has two things to say. He first says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Saying the one thing that I want you to think about, church, is that your sins have been forgiven. 
And the way he writes it is that they have been forgiven once and for all. Did you catch the way that Jeff introduced confession of sin? You're not doing business with God as if your confession then merited his forgiveness. But during the confession of sin, we are simply agreeing with God about what he has said for us. And we look to the blood of Christ shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins once and for all. We're looking back to something that has occurred, not to something we are doing. And John says, remember, your sins have been forgiven for Jesus' sake. John goes on to say, this is what love is, not that we have loved God. We didn't love him first, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to pay the price for our sins, to receive God's wrath for our sins. God, who has the right to be wrathful, also in his mercy gave his son. God poured his wrath out on God for you and for me. It is once and done. It is finished. It has happened. It is over. It is a fundamental reality of life that ought to deeply encourage us. He then looks to the fathers. And look, John's old at this point. And so he says, fathers, to the other old people, he says, look, you've known the one who was from the beginning. And who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Remember, he opens his gospel of John up saying that Jesus was with the Father from the beginning. And John is pointing out to the fathers, you know Jesus and you know this is what he has done for us. And then he says to the young people, he says, you have overcome the evil one. You see, all these things are true of all of us. But John is pointing out that our focus has been on Christ and because of what Jesus has done, we've overcome the evil one. The evil one doesn't have control of your life anymore. Do we know that we sin? Listen, we just saw that in 1 John 2. We know that we're sin. If we claim we don't have sin, we make God out to be a liar. But because of Jesus, who has overcome the evil one once and for all, he has robbed Satan of death because he died for us. This fundamental reality, he says, you all have overcome the evil one. The evil one has no claim on your life. And that's deeply encouraging. He then has something else to say. Listen to what he says. Children, again, all of us, you have known the Father. This is reminiscent of something that Jesus would say, right? Do you remember when Jesus says, I'm going to go to the Father, and they go, where are you going? And, and, and how are you going to get there? And Jesus says, look, Thomas, if you had known me, you would have known that you have already known the Father. And he says, actually, from now on, because you have known me, you have known the Father. And do you want to know what I want to say to you to deeply encourage you? The Father's love for you is not divided. It's not conditioned on the death of Jesus. The Father's love is set on you because he loves you. He decided to. And because of that, he sent his son Christ. And Jesus and his love and his graciousness and his mercy and his willingness, his patience and his long suffering is the Father's heart for you. John says, you've known the Father. He looks at the fathers and he goes, remember, 
You've known Him who is from the beginning. You have known Jesus. And then He looks at the young men again. Those of us in this church, right? All of us again. And He says something interesting. He says in present tense, young men, you are strong. And God's Word abides in you. And then He says definitively, past tense, perfected, you have overcome the evil one. You are strong and God's word abides in you. John uses these fundamental realities of life to encourage us deeply. We have known the Father. The Father has set his love on us. We talk about this love from the beginning of the Bible to the end as a covenant love. It is a love that God says, I am your God, therefore don't have any idols. And he gives commands, right? He says, I have loved you and I've set my love on you, therefore obey me. Covenant love is the difference between therefore and as the quote says, if. A contract says, if you do this, then I will do this. The covenant says, I have set my love on you, therefore you will be my people. One of the best examples of this is a marriage, right? I performed one the other day, and how odd would it have been if you had come to that marriage and you would have heard me turn to the groom and say, I got a question for you. If this woman who you say that you love does X, Y, and Z, will you love her? <laughs> and if you heard that and you heard, yes, I'll love her. And then if I turned to the bride and said, okay, now look, if this man who you say you love does X, Y, and Z, will you love him? Will you? You would go, wait a minute, that's all off. Because you know at the very heart of that marriage is not if, it is I have loved you, therefore we will act with each other in specific ways. This love, this covenant love is God's love set on you and set on me, set on us, a fundamental reality of all of Scripture so that what flows from it is our love. That's why this idea of what we have said, the command to love one another is possible because of the Father's love that generates lovers. Knowing this love, the love of the Father, will bring us pleasure, peace, joy, and it will enable us to love one another. And not just to love one another when it's easy, but to sacrifice our lives for one another. In closing, I was reminded of this in a specific interaction this week that I had. The power of knowing God's love for us was driven home for me on Wednesday. I met and prayed with a woman whose son was on trial for murder. On Thursday, she called me and he was found guilty, which carries for him a mandatory life sentence. 
as we talked, she shared with me and said that her greatest fear is that her son would become hopeless and attempt to take his own life while he was in prison. She asked, could we pray and would you go first? As you can imagine, I was overwhelmed. I prayed and then she began to pray. And this is what she said. Sovereign Lord, my son is in your hands and I cry out to you for mercy on his behalf. Lord, she said, just one experience of your love for him will sustain him. Will you please give him just a taste of your love? And I couldn't help but think of you all. A taste of God's love for you and for me, for us. This fundamental reality that would take away our indifference toward one another, would take away our focus on the desires of our flesh and eyes and the pride of life, and instead generate in us the aspect of lovers, willingly sacrificing our lives for one another. And what I thought of was the invitation of Scripture that says, take, taste, and see that the Lord is good. And I thought that every time we finish preaching, we come to this table so that again, you and I might taste and see that the Lord is good. Are you ready? This deep encouragement is ours because it is the fundamental reality of being loved by the Father. The love that doesn't say if, but says, therefore, and enables us to obey him. Let's run to the table together, and let's do so praying.